This week on the show, we cover the ideas that made Unix, hints for writing Unix tools, cron best practices, three different sorts of file system errors, LibreSSL 3.1.5 has been released, Task Warrior to manage your tasks, and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 450, Unix Tool Writing, recorded on the 30th of March 2022. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow for the online backup for the truly paranoids. And if you would like to support this show in various ways or simply remove the ads in other interesting ways, go to check out our Patreon. It's patreon.com slash bsdnow where you can throw a little bit of money in our tip jar if you like this show. Hello, we are your hosts, Benedict Reuschling. And Tom Jones. Uh, hello, everyone. We have great headlines collected always, and we're always amazed that we get this as a full episode, right? There's, it starts somewhere with a little bit of tiny thing we found on the web, and suddenly we have a whole episode for you. That's why we're doing these things. Starting off this time with a bit of history of Unix. That's a good starter. Uh, it's an article by Clara Systems. They keep collecting them and writing them about Unix philosophy, a quick look at the ideas that made Unix. And so the start begins with early on, developers working on Unix created a set of ideals that acted as a roadmap for the programs that they wrote. They didn't always follow these ideals, but they set the tone for the Unix project. To this day, the Unix philosophy impacts many projects. Okay, so what's that? The tenets of the Unix philosophy. The Unix philosophy was first put into writing by Doug McIlroy in the 1978 Bell System Technical Journal, and they have a link for that in case you want to read that. Uh, the first one is make each program do one thing well. To do a new job, build a fresh rather than complicate old programs by adding new quote-unquote features. Mm -hmm. Second, expect the output of every program to become the input of another as yet unknown program. Don't clutter output with extraneous information. Avoid stringent columnar or stringent columnar or binary input formats, and don't insist on interactive input, so that these programs can neatly talk to each other. Then the third is design and build software, even operating systems, to be tried early, ideally within weeks. Don't hesitate to throw away the clumsy parts and rebuild them. Ideally, maybe could be also hours and minutes uh, nowadays, but in those days they had longer build cycles. Okay, number four, use tools in preference to unskilled help to lighten the programming task. Even if, well, even if you have to detour to build the tools and expect to throw some of them out after you've finished using them. It's a, it's a statement from a different era, isn't it? Yeah, that, imagine... that seemed new to me, the fourth one. The, the first two uh, or three ones, I regularly ask students in the exam just to make sure that they don't recall these at me <laughs> but the fourth <laughs> seems perfectly unknown to me oh, i mean th hmm. this is clearly a, a statement from the days of having a typing pool and um someone to type stuff up from you yeah uh, i mean it's not wrong but yeah okay i i, I was I, I was reading um <laughs> reading about the the diff algorithm used in bsd and i, I was directed into usenet hmm. and there was like a conversation about a paper from the 70s in the 80s one guy was like, oh, yeah, and I typed up the algorithm. Oh, well, okay, to be honest, I got my secretary to type up the algorithm. And I was like, wow, okay, this is a different world. That is, yeah, yeah delegation. <laughs> <laughs> Completely wild. 
I don't think we really have unskilled help anymore. I think that's 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 gone. That's and I thought the writing the and the programming was part of the fun, right? Not something yeah, you put yeah. away. <laughs> but anyway, um, so yeah, there are several ver other versions of the Unix philosophy, and they were uh, neatly summarized uh, in Peter H. Salas's A Quarter Century of Unix. In the shorter versions, write programs that do one thing and do it well, write programs to work together, and write programs to handle text streams because that is a universal interface. And so uh, keep in mind that these ideas are not meant to be strictly followed. In his article, Why the Unix Philosophy Matters, also linked from the article, Markus Schnalke stated it is not a limited set of fixed rules, but a loose set of guidelines to achieve good quality and high gain for the effort spent. Okay, so they are more like guidelines. Remember Pirates of the Caribbean? Um, <laughs> well, uh, then they have uh, individual sections for each of these three rules that they cover more, like keeping programs simple. Uh, for example, we've all seen it. Uh, program starts out with a simple premise in mind. Over time, the developer or developers keep adding more and more features until the original purpose of the program is obscured. This inevitable feature creeps us to Savinsky's law of software development. Yep, which states every program attempts to expand until it can read mail. Those programs which cannot do so expand are replaced by ones which can. And so, yeah, this is a, a true fact. Going on to the design programs to work together, because Unix tools are designed to do one job, it's easy to take a series of Unix tools and string them together to perform a task or a new task. This can be accomplished using pipes, which were advocated by Doug McIlroy. For example, if you wanted to search a text file with a customer list for every person with the first name Gary, you would combine cat and grab. It would look something like this. Cat customer list underscore txt or dot txt. You don't even need the, the extension on Unix. And then pipe that to grab and then Gary, the, the thing you want to search for. And then the results will be listed if there are any. Before you rush to avoid a useless use of cat here, keep in mind that we're specifically discussing the Unix philosophy. Yes, you can accomplish the same result in a single command with grab Gary and customer list, but the goal is not forcing grab to do every conceivable thing, no matter what. It's to showcase the ability to pipe the output of one command to the input of another. Yeah, and so it even allows uh, this form of communication for programs that haven't been written yet or that you are quickly writing in shell or whatever and that still works and it's amazing that programs written in, in the old days are communicating with uh, programs written five seconds ago and so that makes it uh, fascinating use text as an output that's also important plain text is a universal format that is extremely portable and easy to use it turns out according to eric uh, s raymond's the art of unix programming text streams are a valuable universal format because they're so easy for human beings to read write and edit without specialized tools these formats are or can be designed to be transparent. So this tenet reminds the programmer to not add extra complexity to the output and possibly make it hard for other programs to use. It must be portable and usable by any other application. It can be easily edited by the user without needing special programs or tools. Uh, yeah, reading that in the days of, you know, XML and JSON and all these other formats for interchange. Um, yeah, it stands to reason if this is still... Uh, valid or has been uh, for a while, but in Unix, it's still mostly the case. Yeah, almost all proprietary software fails this tenet. Most of them tie up their output in file types that can only be understood by them, which becomes even more problematic when the software is no longer available. For a 
contrasting example, most FOSS software automatically disables colorized text when writing to a pipe because it knows that the extra ASCII is likely to confuse other applications needlessly or, uh, yeah, slow them down because colors. And then there's the test early, test often part. Being able to test a piece of software early allows the programmer to make sure that it works from the word go. Otherwise, uh, there is a good chance that it will fail due to being based on a flawed foundation. Testing early also helps the programmer to determine whether his idea will work or not. It uncovers any problems both with the original idea and in the implementation. If there are any issues, the programmer will be able to adjust the design before too much time has passed or have been wasted heading the wrong direction. And a great example for this can be found in the early days of Unix. Unix was originally created to help the patent department at Bell Labs write up their patent applications. At night, the development team would work on Unix and add new features. The next day, the patent department field tested the system. <laughs> Excellent. And we leave the final thoughts to you and thank the author, John Paul Walscheid, for writing that. Yeah, I mean, this is, I am not saying that Unix tools are not without their power. I, I'm definitely using like awk and grap as <laughs> load bearing components of, of my life, mm -hmm. my career. I would love to know what. Doug would actually think about the structured output we can do with uh, things like libxo, where we can, we have tools where in their, their default form just give us plain text and we can manage it. But you can give the uh, dash dash libxo flag. Um, with that, you can have structured output that can be fed into other things. Uh, and I have a tool I've been sort of idly working on that I'm, I don't want to talk about yet because it's really cool and it's also really silly. So it's like the best like nexus point of like something useful made in the most awful way. And it really heavily lies on libxo, not to get the not to get data or to move data around, but to enable like really rich presentation of data. Oh, interesting. Um yeah, I, I think there's a lot of power there. I'd hate to be like in the PowerShell world where I am told everything is an object mm. because then it becomes really difficult to iterate. But being able to switch things into JSON. Uh, and then suddenly you can just uh, apply a real programming language to the format is, is really powerful rather than having to write like the 8 millionth CSV parser yeah. in, in Python for the thing you're doing. I don't know if the next article covers this, but the next article we have is from uh, Marius Eriksson uh, and it's hints for writing Unix tools. Uh, and this article has been translated into Japanese, which is actually really cool. Ooh. I really did that. Um, so uh, Marius writes, the workaday world of a modern programmer abounds with Unix tools, stitched together in a myriad of ways. While good tools integrate seamlessly with your own environment, bad ones will constantly frustrate your efforts. Yeah, like Arcanist not getting rid of stupid colors when you pipe it something. Mm -hmm. uh, good tools have a seemingly limitless application constrained by only by your imagination. Bad tools, on the other hand, will often require that you deploy a salvo of brittle hacks to keep them barely working in your own environment. Uh, and there was a tweet quoted here, uh, and the tweet is from Marius, and it's one thing well misses the point. It should be one thing and composes well, and and maybe that is the maybe that's the core here. Uh, Marius continues. I don't want to attempt to explain what makes for good design. This has been discussed elsewhere, and that's a hyperlink to somewhere. Uh, programming environment predecessor whole software series. Uh, instead, I want to outline a few established customs that you should take care to follow when writing new tools. When making a truly good tool can be an elusive goal, it isn't difficult to avoid making a truly bad one. Unix demands good citizenry from its tools. 
It relies on a set of conventions to make things work and importantly to compose well. Here follows a few key customs often violated. These aren't absolute requirements, but you should think long and hard before violating them. Consume input from standard in, produce output to standard out. Put another way, your program should be a filter. Filters are easily integrated into shell pipelines, arguably the most important utility for Unix tools composition. Output should be free from headers or other decoration. Superfluous output will frustrate users who are trying to parse uh, tool output. Headers and decoration tend to be less regular and more idiosyncratic than the structured data you're really trying to get at. Don't do it. Output should be simple to parse and compose. This usually means representing each record as a single plain text formatted line of output whose columns are separated by white space. No JSON, please. Most venerable Unix tools, grep, sort, set amongst them, assume this. As a simple example, considering the following output from a benchmark suite, it is formatted by starting each record with a benchmark name followed by a set of key value pairs associated with the benchmark name. This is a flexible structure to work with that allows you to add or remove keys at will without violating the output format. Uh, and the output format um, is just a word, a colon, and then something else. And so the example is benchmark, fizzbuzz, time, 10 nanoseconds in operation. So it looks like that. While convenient, I've scrolled away, while convenient, it is clumsy to work with in Unix. Consider a very common thing we might want to do. Look up the timing results for a single benchmark. Here's how you do it. Uh, run benchmarks, uh, awk, for lines starting with benchmark, Sign bench to a variable in awk, uh, bench equals fizzbuzz. Um, yeah, I don't know this, what this awk script does. If instead each line presents exactly one record where columns are separated by white space, um, this becomes a much simpler task. Um, and, and podcasts are not the correct medium to describe textual output. Right, yeah. The advantage becomes more evident when reordering or aggregating the input. For example, when the output is record per line, Sorting the results by time spent is a simple matter of invoking sort. And you, know, you can do sort uh, dash K and pick a column for sort. Um, treat a tool's output as an API. Your tool will be used in context beyond your imagination. If a tool's output format is changed, other tools that compose or otherwise build on its output will invariably break. You've broken the API contract. Place diagnostics on standard error. Uh, diagnostics include anything that is not in the primary output. These are progress indicators, debugging output, log messages, error messages, and usage information. When diagnostics output is intermingled with data, it's very difficult to parse and thus compose the tools output. What's more standard error makes diagnostic output more useful since even if standard out is filtered or redirected, standard error keeps printing to the user's terminal, uh, apart from when I redirect it. Uh, signal failure with an exit status. If your tool fails, uh, exit with a status other than zero. This allows simple shell integration and also simpler error handling in scripts. Um, and then there's an example. Make a tool's output portable. Put another way, a tool's output should stand on its own, requiring as little context as possible to parse and interpret. For example, you should use absolute paths to represent files and fully qualified host names to represent internet hosts. Portable output is directly usable by other tools without further context. A frequent violator of this is build tools. For example, both GCC and client compilers try to be clever by reporting paths that are relative to your working directory. In this example, the source path files are presented to the relative to the current working directory when the compiler was invoked. This cleverness breaks down quickly. For example, if I do make dash one with the dash C flag, so it's a different directory. Now the output is less useful. To which file does 
x.c refer to. Other tools that build on this need additional context. The dash c argument, in order to interpret it, the compiler's output, the output does not stand on its own. Uh, omit needless diagnostics. Resist the temptation to inform the user of everything that is being done. It does make for cool cyberpunk aesthetics though. But if you must do it, do it on standard error. A good tool is quiet when all is well, but produces useful diagnostics when things go wrong. Excessive diagnostic conditions users to ignore all diagnostics. Useful diagnostics output does not require the user to go around in endless log files to determine what went wrong and where. There's nothing wrong with having a verbose mode, typically with dash V, in order to aid development and debugging. Avoid making interactive programs. Tools should be usable without user interaction beyond what's provided by the user's shell. Um, and, and you can read the rest of the interactive one there. Um, I disagree with half of this article, so it's probably quite good. <laughs> okay. <It's>, yeah, <laughs> it was also made, at the bottom, it is said it was discussed on Hacker News, so I'm fairly sure there was some back and forth. Yeah, I, I think a lot of this is preference. Um, I hate tools that print their usage on standard error uh, because typically tools that print their usage on standard error, um, when they encounter an, an error in the flags, they don't tell you what the error is or where it came from. They just print the usage on standard error. Mm. And the usage is typically like 20 lines of text. Yeah. And so you need to pipe that into less to read it. Um, and then you don't even get help from the tool. Yeah, it should be contextual. Um... Yeah. And, and really my complaint there is not um, don't do the thing that annoys me. The complaint is design a tool for, for people using the tool that don't know how to use the tool. Right. You should inform users when you have a problem. Yeah, designing of error messages is also, I think that was another article the other day on Hacker News, like don't say error 24 or couldn't read something. You should basically say why that was and suggest something to help the user or to avoid that in the future or possible error cases, why this could have happened. So that way the user has a much better idea how to deal with that. Yeah, the, the thing that gets me is I I run a lot of tools that handle command line flags I've never written a tool that hasn't been able to tell you what's wrong with the command line flags when it errors out for the flags being wrong. I don't know how people write tools like that. Any, anyway, uh, it's fine. The interesting thing about the, the tools as an API is it makes it impossible for software to evolve if you adhere to this really strictly. Um, I think if you have a tool which generates um, plain text, then you should do your best to maintain backwards compatibility, but you can you have to change the format. The formats of things changes over time and you, you have to be able to adapt to this. Uh, and the way we do binary compatibility in APIs is um, by only appending new stuff to the end. And that makes the output more clumsy, but at least it means you can grow. Uh, but if you're at the point where you think your tool is gonna integrate into other stuff, the API should be in the form of structured output like JSON. And this is what the, the Debian tools do. Yeah. If you do um, apt search, the first thing it says is when you pipe it into less, because it gives you 40 pages of output no matter what you do, because they decided to do three lines. Don't like apt. And when you do apt search and you pipe it into less, it, it says, this is not a stable API, don't use it. And it tells you where the API is. Mm. And I think that is a really nice trade-off. Um, yeah, no, this is good. It's it's interesting. I like the theme that JT has put together for us as well. Yeah, this is... Tools as APIs. Yeah, yeah. This this seems to be the episode <laughs> where there's a lot of practicality and Unix uh, best practices in this one. Like the... Yeah, we need more surrealism. Surrealism will be nice. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you 
Okay, let's check out the next part, the news roundup here. We have cron best practices for you. Always good to know these things because, hey, well, just write another cron job. But there are some good ways and bad ways. So this article covers these. Uh, the time-based job scheduler cron has been around since version 7 Unix and its cron tab uh, syntax is familiar even for people who don't do much Unix system administration. It's standardized, reasonably flexible, simple to configure, and works reliably, and so it's trusted by both system packages and users to manage many important tasks. However, like many older Unix tools, cron simplicity has a drawback. It relies upon the user to know some detail of how it works and to correctly implement any other safety checking behavior around it. Specifically, all it does is try and run the job at the appropriate time and email the output. For simple and unimportant per user jobs, that may be just fine. But for more crucial system tasks, it's worthwhile to wrap a little extra infrastructure around it and the task it calls. So there are a few ways to make that way uh, to use cron more robust if you're in a situation where keeping task a track of a running job is desirable. So first, apply the principle of least privilege. The sixth column of a system cron tab file is the username of the user as which the task should run. And most people put root in there because root is almighty and yeah, then you get not any permissions problems. To the extent that this is practical, you should run the task as a user with only the privilege it needs to run and nothing else. This can sometimes make it worthwhile to create a dedicated system user purely for running scheduled tasks related to your application. Then there is the, uh, yeah, here's the example, my app cron user, and that executes the cron task. This is not just for security reasons, although those are good ones. It helps protect you against nasties like scripting errors, attempting to remove entire system directories. Ah, yes. <laughs> uh, been there, happened to me. Similarly, for tasks with database systems, such as MySQL, don't use the administrative root user if you can avoid that. Instead, user even create a dedicated user with a unique random password stored in a lockdown to the slash dot dot my dot cnf file. Uh, that's the MySQL con file. While only the needed permissions for a MySQL backup task, for example, only a few permissions should be required, including select show view and lock tables. And not also like create, read, update, delete, whatever. In some cases, of course, you really need to be root. In particular, sensitive contexts, you might even consider using sudo, which appropriate no-pass WD options to allow the dedicated user to run only the appropriate task as root and nothing else. The next best practice is called test the tasks. Before placing a task in CronDap, you should test it in the command line first, as the user configured to run the task and with the appropriate environment set. If you're going to run the task as root, Use something like su or as sudo-i to get a root shell with the user's expected environment first. So here's sudo-i-u cron user and then execute the cron task. Once the task works on the command line, place it in the cron tab file with the timing settings modified to run the task a few minutes later. Don't wait for next day or the next month to uh, check if it's working. And then watch warlock syslog with tail-f to check that the task actually runs without errors and that the task itself completes properly. Okay. Yeah, then there will be an entry uh, in the log. This may seem pedantic at first, but it becomes routine very quickly and it saves a lot of hassles down the line as it's very easy to make an assumption about something in your environment that doesn't actually hold in the one that cron will use. It's also a necessary asset test to make sure that your cron tab file is well formed as some implementations of cron will refuse to load the entire file if one of the lines is malformed. Yeah. Then another one is don't throw away errors or useful output. 
You've probably seen tutorials on the web where in order to keep the contact job from sending standard output or standard error emails every five minutes, shell redirection operators are included at the end of the job specification to discard both the standard output and standard error. And this is particularly common for running web development tasks by automating requests to a URL with curl or wget. So then you pipe that to, uh, you do curl on a website, uh, then redirect that to dev null and then all the other standard error and standard input also to not see anything ignoring the output completely is generally not a good idea because unless you have other tasks or monitoring ensuing or ensuring the job does its work you won't notice problems or know what they are when the job emits output or errors that you actually care about and he lists a couple of things that could happen in uh, this thing in, in the curl invocation alone um going down a little bit further to the next cron uh, oddity or best practice more like send the output somewhere useful another common mistake is failing to set a useful mail to at the top of the cron tab file as the specified destination to any output and errors from the tasks cron uses the system mail implementation to send its messages and typically default configurations for mail agents will simply send the message to an mbox file var mail dollar user that they may not ever read I mean, who reads these mails these days? <laughs> this defeats much of the point of mailing output and errors. This is easily dealt with though. Ensure that you can send a message to an address you actually do check from the server, perhaps piping that to mail and then sending it uh, to yourself with a nice little test subject that you can actually filter out from the loads of email that you get every day. Or you use the logger command to write that to syslog to uh, use uh, your uh, log processing software, whatever you have to filter these out so that you can find the errors or the messages from the cron daemons as well. Next one, put the tasks in their own shell script file. Ideally, the commands in your cron job definition should only be a few words and one or two commands. If the command is running off the screen, it's likely too long to be in the cron tab file and you should instead put it into its own script. This is a particularly good idea if you want the reliable use features or of bash or yeah well it seems like this is a unix user uh, a linux user uh, but anyway it doesn't matter it's still a good practice some other shells beside posix and born bin sh for your commands or even a scripting language like awk or Perl. by default cron uses the system's bin sh implementation for parsing the commands okay then there's another one avoid etc slash cron tab if your implementation of cron supports that, rather than having an etc cron tab file a mile long, you can put tasks into separate files in etc slash cron.d, where you can put uh, each one as a separate file. This approach allows you to group the configuration files meaningfully so that you and other administrators can find the appropriate tasks more easily. It also allows you to make some files editable by some users and not others, and also check them into source, uh, you know, your source repository while you're there and reduces the chance of edit conflicts. Yep, all good practices. Another one with uh, along these lines is include a timeout. Cron will normally allow tasks to run indefinitely. So it is not, if it's not desirable to let this run forever, you should consider either using options of the program you're calling to implement a timeout or including one in the script. If there's no option for the command itself, the timeout command wrapper in coreutils is a more possible way to implement this. Yeah, the BSDs have a similar way uh, to deal with this. Include file locking to prevent overruns. That's similar so that you're not uh, getting into trouble uh, by having a file locked. Uh, do something useful with exit statuses. Yes, make sure that they actually emit those. 
So that's this is more into the vein of, hey, write a script first and then uh, react to that. And last but not least, consider alternatives to cron, like anacron, uh, that uh, don't need to run at a specific time. So rather, uh, if either the clock is off or it's running on a system that's not connected to this uh, to a network all the time or to a time server that can sync the clock, then anacron is the way to do this. Very nice. I think these are good practices for everyone writing a cron job. There's a lot of caveats there. Maybe you just shouldn't use cron. <laughs> There's that, yeah. <laughs> That's why we have maybe, periodic maybe cough, how, right? Yeah, maybe this is how we get like 14 different implementations of cron that are all different as well. Yeah. <clears throat> Everyone's just like, oh, I could do cron better. <laughs> yeah, I, I might as well do this, right? How hard could it be? Yeah, I said that last week. Um, next up, we have uh, a post from Chris Siebenman. Um and Chris writes, file systems can experience at least three different sorts of errors. Uh, this is written on the 11th of March. So you'll know yesterday was the 10th of March. And, and Chris says, yesterday I wrote about how it would be nice if Linux exposed account of disk errors. I mentioned that some Linux file systems do expose such account of errors, but it's not clear what sort of errors they mean. This sounds like a peculiar thing to say. But in fact, file systems can experience at least two or three different sorts of errors. I will call these IO errors, integrity errors, and structural errors. An IO error happens when the underlying storage device returns an error from a read or write operation. Some file systems have some internal redundancy that can hide such errors that occur in the right sort of places, but most of the time, this is a direct user error that will correspond to an IO error that's hopefully reported by the storage device. Because of this general direct link between a lower level error and a file system error, a file system might opt to not track and report these errors, especially when they happen while reading user data instead of file system metadata. An integrity error happens when the file system has some, some form of checksums over some of its di disk data, and the recorded checksum fails to match what should be based on the, on the data the file system got from the storage device. ZFS is famous for having checksums on both user data and file system metadata, although it's not the only file system to do so. There are other file systems that have checksums that apply only to file system metadata. Almost all storage devices have some level of undetected bit corruption, and checksums can also detect other sorts of disk damage, such as misdirected writes. A structural error happens when the file system detects that some of its on-disk metadata is not correct in any of the many specific ways for any particular sort of metadata to be incorrect. Sometimes this happens because on-disk data has been corrupted, but sometimes it happens because file system code has bugs that cause something incorrect and invalid to be written out to the disk, in which case the metadata may have perfectly valid checks onto other integrity checks. A file system that counts errors and can recognize in integrity errors on metadata might not want to double count such errors as structural errors as well. Given all of this, you can see that a file, what a file system counts as errors without being more specific is rather unclear. Is this account of all errors the file system can detect, including IO errors? Is this account of all structural errors, regardless of their cause, even if they come from detected and logged IO errors or integrity errors? If a file system counts integrity errors somehow, does that count include failed integrity checks, which at least implicitly happen when there are IO errors? There are situations where you can experience IO errors on IO. That's only because that, that's on IO, that, that's only necessary to verify the integrity, not return the requested data. You might reasonably count this as both an IO error 
and an integrity error as opposed to a situation where you have an IO error on data that's directly necessary. Any given file system that reports or counts errors is going to have to answer all of these questions, but there is no single set of obvious and clearly correct answers. It varies on a file system by file system basis. So if, so if you hear that a file system is reporting errors, you don't know as much about what it's reporting as you might think. Yeah, that, that's a mess. Why would you have invented anything like this? Yeah. In networks, we just drop the packets. Uh, yeah, well, like, oh, that, packet. that's a different domain, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, we don't need. Don't, you don't need. Send it again. Send it again. Is fine. that the domain where the two meet, the network file systems that I hear so many things about? Yeah, because then you could have um, an IO error on the originating host leading to a valid packet that gets corrupted on the receiver, which leads to uh, checks on failure. Packet's gone. Problem solved. Ah, uh, send it again. <laughs> Worst of both worlds, right? In all one yeah, big well, you know, it, network, networks are great. They're meant to drop packets. It's a good day when you're dropping packets. Uh, okay, I will take that at face value. There, there is there is an excellent talk by George Danville Neal called uh, "Dropping Packets as Fast as You Can," where he introduces network benchmarking and firewalls. Uh, it's on on YouTube. I think it was a EuroBSD con talk. Oh yes, if it was, I must. If it was BSD can, I'm sorry. Yeah, I must have been uh, in the. To talk yeah so if your network yeah if your file system drops a package then no one will trust you anymore and if your network drops a package well it's just tuesday yeah yeah i mean i've dropped packets on wednesdays too so <laughs> yeah it's, it's any day good. of the week it's just fine <laughs> so let's go into a similar domain encryption with LibreSSL 3.5.1 development branch uh, as well as the 3.4.3 stable and 3.3.6 release branch or have been released. Uh, this is over at undeadly.org, your trusted OpenBSD journal. And they have from the certifiably loopy department a message for undeadly, undeadly readers. Our errata column on the right side of the website automatically updates. And as of March 15, 2022, some of you have already noticed that there is a new security fix related to LibreSSL. Uh, salient excerpts from the release notes as follows. A malicious certificate can cause an infinite loop reported by and fixed from Tavis or Mandy and David Benjamin, Google. Subsequently, LibreSSL 3.5.1, which is the development branch for those tracking current 7.1 beta, and 3.4.3, which is the stable branch for those tracking 7.0 release, as well as 3.3.6, the last supported branch for those stragglers still on OpenBSD 6.9, have been released. And you can find more information on libreSSL.org slash releases for more details. And the release notes specific to each of these versions, it appears that the same bug was present in OpenSSL and has been fixed there too. Good to know of sorts. I mean, I would trust LibreSSL more with uh, OpenSSL these days, but at least they're trying to catch up with the bug fixes. <laughs> um, yeah, good work. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, next up, we have a blog post from me. Ah, how um, did that happen? Yeah, I, I mean, clearly this is an attack. Uh, I, I wrote this on the 29th of November, 2016, uh, and I'm sure any present tense sentence in it is now invalid. Yeah, okay, let's um, hear it. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so I, 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 I Tom Jones, uh, I start by saying I use Task Warrior, which is not true. I don't, I, I don't use it anymore. Uh, I use Task Warrior to manage tasks. Well, sort of. Ah, I see I was hedging already. Uh, every so often I fill it with high-ish level tasks and leave it completely forgotten for a few weeks. Can you tell why I don't use Task Warrior? On a similar frequency, though out of phase, I look through my task list and prune out things that I have done. This isn't great. I've had a lot of trouble refining tasks down, figuring out what to do, then doing it. 
last night I thought it would be I would try to start generating a set of tasks to do tomorrow. Then when I get to work the next day, I could ask Task Warrior what it is I was to do that day. Task Warrior makes that sort of thing easy with virtual tags. The virtual tags can only be generate can only be generated by due dates. Uh, and Task Warrior command here is task add uh, due colon tomorrow uh, project, but abbreviated in an infuriating way, uh, life, and then the phrase get milk. I hope I bought milk. Uh, this will generate a task due tomorrow, today, but come tomorrow it will be tagged with today. Makes sense, right? We can then easily search for all the tasks mas matching the today tag, uh, task plus today list gives you a list. The task warriors output looks awesome on the command line, but it doesn't come out of my terminal printer very well. Task warrior will output JSON with the export flag. JSON isn't very fun on the command line. Thankfully, there's the JQ, JQ tool. Uh, JQ claims to be like sad for JSON. It explains its near inscrutability. Yeah, it's really hard. Uh, with these bits, we can generate a snappy list of what we have to do today. Uh, I've clearly used Figlet here because I love Figlet. Uh, and I did uh, figlet dash f small, so in the small font today, uh, catted, uh, I guess a needless cat, um, cat uh, temporary JSON file, um, feed it through JQ, pull out the project name in the description, gives you a nice list with today in terminal ASCII block text, um, uh, me planning a heist. Oh, did you? I see that. I'm, I, can't, I, can't, I can't talk about these, <laughs> uh, which is really easy to spit out of my thermal printer. And there's a picture of my thermal printer. And just the edge of the thermal printer is my VT320 serial terminal and an EFF sticker. Ooh, and there's an oscilloscope in the background. Um, and at the end, I finished with, I wonder if there is some way to get X screensaver to run a script when I log in. I could use that hook to tidy away undone tasks and do the print on my first login of the day. Um, pretty cool. I, I'm better at writing what I thought. Um, yeah, no, I, I genuinely think, uh, so when I read this today, uh, I, re I remember last week deleting the aliases from my ZSHRC, which did all this stuff, except on a, on a new computer. Um, and I definitely never used this. Um, but I will say if you buy a USB uh, thermal printer and you plug it in in FreeBSD, it comes up as an LPT device. Oh. And so with no configuration, you can just cat stuff to it, which is what I did there. That's cool. Uh, yeah, it's really cool. It's really interesting. Uh, you could probably use, oh, there's a command line tool for raster baiting uh, image, um, images together. Uh, raster baiting is where you print uh, pages, um, but you could probably print really long stuff with a the thermal printer. Mm -hmm. I don't think I would do this anymore. This is really, really bad for the environment. Yeah, of course, you create a lot of thermal paper, <laughs> which you cannot read after a while. Yeah, and the <laughs> so thermal printer ink isn't as bad anymore but it used to be the thermal printer ink was uh super toxic that, so you that shouldn't too, handle yeah. it uh, but i don't think the stuff you buy anymore is, is like that uh i do have a project for thermal printers uh which we're going to take to emf camp in in june oh nice uh, i'm sure you'll see if you follow me on twitter and nowhere else because it's going to be uh politically risque oh that makes it even more exciting <laughs> to listen to <laughs> Yeah, so it's all about reminding about these tasks. So what do you have these days? You just uh, drop them? I mean, I, I can give you a full review of the history. So for a long time, um, sort of two-ish years, I would uh, write out a list in the morning uh, of the stuff to do today. And then I would carry forward the stuff from before. Ah. And I started doing this on a typewriter, uh, not just to up my hipster cred, but because the... Um, I find that taking notes 
I never actually look at notes again. Mm. It's the act of writing, which helps me remember things. And so I would type out on a typewriter and I would carry forward the previous day, the stuff that needed to still be done. So I would type it out uh, and that actually helped me do a lot of things. Mm. And I would type it out in the morning and then I would add stuff throughout the day uh, and on a piece of paper. Uh, when I moved house in 2020, uh, I couldn't use the typewriter because I didn't want to wake up my housemate in the morning anymore. <laughs> in the morning, and typing so, away. <laughs> yeah, I did this electronically for a while. Um, and now I just have a, a notebook. I mean, I'm going to show Benedict my notebook. It's in a lovely leather folio. Oh, nice. And there's, there's oh, yeah, these uh, day planners of sorts. Yeah. Um, and then the, the rest of the tasks I have to deal with are managed in bug tracking systems, so they're easier just to track down. Indeed. I don't really have like abstract floating tasks now. When I was working in university, a lot of the tasks were like, re review this document again, 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 like constantly like reading the same things or like checking like loads of little notes. And now it's easier. There's more concrete lists of things to do and it's, it's easier to follow. Okay. Who knows what the future will hold though? Because I'm on like my fifth system for tracking and managing work. Yeah, I mean, you keep refining. It's, it seems like you haven't found the proper one, but you still make the effort of finding another one that's better working for you yeah i i think if i if i was if i was in working in research and i wasn't doing uh like a technical role like if i had to do a lot of reading for my research mm. uh, i would probably avoid uh task management like this and i would instead use a system like zettel kasten kasten silly german word um from the book how to take great notes uh -huh. which is like it's basically a continuous writing system which I, I read the book on uh, last year and I thought it was great. And immediately was like, this doesn't apply to the work I do in any form and I can't use it. Ugh. But but if you if you write a lot, then it might be something to look at. Okay, um, cool. Yeah, it's good. I mean, this is the interesting part that we should also talk more about, like what makes people productive and what systems have other people used or tried that was maybe not successful for them, but maybe could be useful for someone else. And so... Yeah, no yeah, it's really good. Uh, I used to have, so I, I did used to have a thermal printer connected to my desktop at work and the desktop was always on because it was a jump host into the network, mm -hmm. um, which meant the thermal printer was always on. Um, and when you're talking about productivity, um, I, I sometimes can find it hard to work. Um, and so I used to have a little note uh, format for the thermal printer, which is just the principles of flow. Uh -huh. And so flow is a continuous, like productive state. Yeah. Uh, so I would like, if, if I was having a really hard day, I would just print that out and, and review it. Um, I wonder what they are. It's something like, uh, there's like five sort of principles that were identified by a uh, psycho psychologist. Uh, and a big part of it is like um, knowing um, what to do, knowing how to do it, uh, knowing how much you've progressed and knowing like how well you were doing. Mm -hmm. Like, and situations that match these criteria, it's very easy to keep working. Yeah, exactly. And not getting distracted all the time. Yeah, yeah. And that's another one. Probably have freedom from interruptions. But yeah. I think anyone studying productivity is like, step one, don't read Twitter every five seconds. Yeah, uh, uh, that, that, That's already <laughs> a, a, a huge boost in productivity. Don't tweet <laughs> at, at most. Don't even read, not, not, not read, not tweet. That's Close IRC. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I'm a big fan of um, Kanban. You probably have heard about this. Yeah. Because you make a lot of cars. Yeah. Oh, you can have virtual ones where you have a Kanban software. <laughs> uh, there's that. If you do it in a, in a virtual way, uh, it's, uh, I mean, the act of moving a ticket or a, uh, one of these uh, little 
yellow tapes, if you want to call it that, or yellow uh, notes, sticky notes, to another column. That's kind of satisfying. It's less so in the uh, virtual world, but in the real world, you have a lot of paper waste. That's, uh, of course, a given. But it, it also tracks, like, progress and what's next and what needs to be done right now or you can have different columns or these swim lanes where you can say oh, here's all the changes that i have to do these are the long-term projects these are the uh, things that i plan to do in the uh, next five weeks or so and so that's a nice way of um, also tracking what you're going to do and you can do this in a personal way you could do this as a project you could do this as a whole department uh, I, I would do this over the summer with students uh, when developing a software that I'm kind of uh, coming up on my own. Uh, and so this is just along a to do the project management, but I think it will also help the students organizing uh, and keeping track of the items that they have to do. Yeah, that's really cool. If, if that sort of thing works for you, Task Warrior might work for you. Um, Could the be. The problem yeah. I had with ta tools like Task Warrior is that... Um, most of the work in a task was determining how much work was in the task. Mm -hmm. um, and two things that could look the same, one of them could be five minutes of work and the other one could be six weeks. And I was never very good at figuring out, uh, sizing out problems. Uh, there was a great article called uh, T-shirt sizing that I can't find anymore. Um, like not great at like picking out the problems and knowing which was which. Like which one is worth spending an hour breaking into smaller parts yeah. and which one isn't even an hour's worth of work. But I think you would, uh, you would get better over time the more you do this, like the estimates. Yeah, and I'm sure if you work in a team where uh, there's like cohesive discipline from a community, like that would work. But if you're uh, academic and you just work by yourself most of the time, it doesn't, you know, the discipline sort of fades. Yeah. You, you have all the energy <laughs> and then you're really stressed. And then three months later, you're like, oh, I'm trying to be organized. Oh, oh let's try it It's get, getting worse then, yeah. The nice thing also with Kanban that I liked is that you have these task limits that you only can do so many things in this one column or that you can start so many things um, because typically you get handed more stuff than you could do actually in a in realistic time. And so limiting yourself allows you not only to plan better, but also say, okay, I have enough on my plate. I cannot do this right now. Either someone else needs to pick it up or I need to finish something first before I start a new thing. That's just normal but we don't track these things normally on a on a like a task board and then you of course say yeah i can do that but you don't say when or how fast it's going to get happened or done and with kanban you can say okay realistically over a period of i don't know a month or so i can finish maybe 30 tasks or i don't know 60 or my team can finish 60 tasks let's say and then you can say okay in the next month my team cannot take more because i'm not the you know, whip uh, swinging person trying to put more stuff on their plates every time, but say, here we can promise that each month we can do this many tasks. That helps you estimate how much we can achieve in a year. And that makes planning more reliable because people can say, okay, they might be able to do a peak of like 40 tasks a month, but on average, they can do 30 and they guarantee to be able to do these. And that way you can uh, do a much better estimation and your software may be less late this way. I'm not sure if it works here in this academic setting here, <laughs> but it's worth a try. <laughs>
We should mention our sponsor for this week, Tarsnap, the online backups for the truly paranoid. For the people who are never uh, had an issue losing their data, this might be, why would I have to do this? No, this is probably happening to you sooner than later. And why not make backups while you still can? Tarsnap is a solution from Colin Percival, who wrote his own uh, backup service. It has a tar command line, very similar to the original tar command, but with Tarsnap specific parts. It asks you to create a personal key that it uh, encrypts your data with, and only then the data leaves your disk or your device uh, encrypted and only encrypted. And then it's stored in Amazon's cloud where the Tarsnap servers are residing until the fateful day that you need your data back. And as long as you hold your personal key, then you are able to download it again and encrypted that's the important part everyone else who doesn't have the key can not make heads and tails of what the data is inside check out tarsnap there are plenty of clients available for various operating systems bsd linux mac os uh, windows subsystem or subsystem for windows um, never used those but it's available you can look at the source code that's the truly paranoid part figure out the documentation on the website it's quite easy and walks you through making backups uh, sooner rather than later because it could be uh, any second that counts. Okay, let's jump into feedback and questions, which we're already getting low, but this time we could uh, collect a few. Uh, if you have questions and feedback for us, maybe about the discussion we just had, then send this to feedback at bsdnow.tv and provide maybe your productivity tools or your ideas to this, as well as other things like show ideas, topics that you want us to discuss, or something BSD related that we haven't found when scouring the web each week. Okay, the first one is Andrew with a virtualization question that we kind of have to interpret, but let's read it first. Hi folks, question about virtualization. Is there a path to getting KVM style hardware acceleration with FreeBSD's QEMU port? Especially with VMs that require a GUI like X11 client. Beehive isn't there. If not KVM, is Beehive likely to achieve parity at some point? I spin up VMs as user workspaces and I'd like to do it on FreeBSD if I could. I, I still don't know what the question yeah, is. Yeah, so we have um, to interpret this a little bit. I, I, I think that neither Benedict or I have any experience using QEMU KVM. I think that might be the problem. <laughs> yeah, that could be. So what I get from this question is that we have someone doing KVM style, hardware acceleration with QEMU, and asking if uh, FreeBSD's Beehive could be uh, similar in performance because he's talking about hardware acceleration. Do they mean graphics acceleration? Yeah, that specifically. Yeah, too many, too many network cards today. Um, so... There is a set of patches from, oh no, I've forgotten the name of the company. Um, that industrial German company, what are they called? Oh, you mean, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, gee. They do twin cat BSD. What are they called? Um, ah, gee, it's such a common name. Why don't I? <laughs> it's not more systems. It's... Um... No. There, there, there is a, a set of patches from uh, one of the authors was, I'm sure the CTO of a company presented at the, the FreeBSD Developer Summit uh, the year before last. Uh, there's a series of patches they have for enabling PCI pass-through for um, AMD graphics devices with Beehive. Mm -hmm. I looked at this at like last month, six weeks ago, um, and the patches were landing slowly. And there was like a big set of them. So I think work is being done right now, which allow you to pass the entire PCI device through 
So you could get accelerated AMD graphics with Beehive. Um, if that is parity, then I think it, it's getting there. I think more complicated things where you can divide up the card um, or um, like pass surfaces through. I'm, I'm sort of just guessing at technical terms now. Uh, so you could get acceleration while still being able to run a FreeBSD desktop. It's not all, it's not there. Uh, I definitely agree it's not present. Hmm. What is lacking for this is uh, people to do development. Um, and I'm sure the development is really hard, but you have to start. Someone has to start yeah. uh, and then the rest can be figured out. I've run Windows virtual machines on Beehive and they were okay, but it's a remote desktop client. And so if you need graphics acceleration, then it's not where you're going to go. Yeah, for gaming and stuff, that's not there yet. I've read uh, from the um, logs from the Beehive call that they do, uh, that they also work on VGA pass-through. Like that's not uh, accelerated, but at least something to start and maybe with the patches uh, from the company we can't recall that's really a shame um we probably have this at, the f at a future point but at the moment we're still not uh there as tom said so if you want to do these things then uh at the moment it's probably uh better to do this on qemu with the KVM style hardware acceleration but if what do you say? Back off. Ah, yes, back off automation. Sorry, <laughs> folks. Ah, <laughs> I haven't been in touch for a while. Um, I, I guess Beehive will catch up. It's just a question of when and how much time you can wait until. Oh, yeah, no, that. no. Be Beehive is not going to catch up unless you do the work. Exactly, uh, yeah. Some, someone has to do the work to make it happen. Yeah. And also providing testing and helping out with uh, like feedback and when there are patches. The tests are uh, done. Yeah, actually. So if, you, if you're interested in running the AMD stuff, there's a patch set in Fabricator, the FreeBSD review system, and it definitely needs testing. Um, te and testing at the level of like, I built this patch and it's it runs. It does. It's really yeah. helpful for other developers to see. Like it will help. Okay. Yeah, that's more, uh, or that's all we can say at the moment. And uh, if there is something happening, we'll certainly cover it on the... Uh, show in a future episode because hey we're just excited as you are about these things yeah, yeah we want these things too um okay cool so the next question we have is from brad and uh, brad says hi alan and benedict and jt and tom uh, i heard you needed more feedback so i thought i would toss a non-zfs question out there yeah, great. i've been messing with jails for a couple of years i started with and have stuck with io cage but i was looking at the container orchestration in freebsd wiki page and saw that there were bastille easy jail IOCage, IOC, IOCell, POT, CBSD. So I have two questions. First, and I know your answer is going to be, it depends, but I have to ask, which is better or what are the differences between the different management tools? The second question, is there interoperability between jail tools? Can I build a jail with IOCage and manage it later with Bastille? Or can I change tools in midstream or do I have to recreate the jail in the new tool? Here's another use case for switching tools. IOCage uses, IO uses ZFS for jails, so you can migrate them via ZFS send. If I'm reading it correctly, can I migrate an, migrate an IOCage jail to Bastille or CBSD jail? Uh, yes, uh, for the migration question, uh, Bastille definitely lists this as a possibility to uh, import an IOCage jail into Bastille and run it basically unmodified uh, in their own system. Uh, I, I'm a long-time IOKH user and I still use it today. I was uh, a month ago trying to switch to Bastille and try it out. And for the life of me, I couldn't get the simplest things working. I mentioned this in the other podcast I did with Alan the other day. And I couldn't make the simplest things uh, running in the jail. I was like, 
why not? And then it turned on me on a, on a side note and somewhere in the man page, it says, each jail is started with secure level two. Ah, yes. And on secure level two on FreeBSD, you cannot do much. And so you have to lower the secure level to actually do stuff in the jail. If you have a pre-configured jails or some of the jails they offer as a pre-built jail, that's all fine. And the secure level definitely makes it more secure. But for someone who's starting out with this, this can be kind of a tripwire. Ah, okay. Is, is that because Bastille want you to um, use their pre-made jails? Probably, yes. Um, Although you can perfect, I, I was finally able to lower the secure level and then start the stuff um, that I wanted. But then I had a bit of a problem with VNet. I couldn't enable VNet for some reason. It always worked on IOCage, but for Bastille, it somehow didn't work. Were, uh, Bastille already used VNet. Oh, it does. So, um, I thought it only does VNet. I, I, okay, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm not sure. Uh, I've used POT. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I've used the raw jail commands. I quite like the raw jail that, commands. That also works, yeah. But if you have multiple jails to manage, then you probably want I don't have any jails to manage. I just <laughs> spin up a jail for running tests and then turn it off. Right. Um, so I am not the right person to ask about long-time management. Um, I did write an article for Clara about Pot and Nomad. And it seemed fine. Yeah. So it's easy nice. jail, uh, I think that's unmaintained at the moment, but still works. So if you want newer features, it could not work probably but i think it's still good enough to be working with jails yeah uh importing things from easy jail not sure if bastille can do that um but i think I don't, yeah you're never locked into any of these tools no they're all in, open in the end they are just running with normal jail commands yeah so you could definitely always free things um and the files in if there you have no experience with that it might be really intimidating so it might not actually be practical but yeah you could definitely transition and figure out how to transition yeah that's always in good. some way and CBSD is also fine. It also does Beehive. So it's not just for jails. It's also doing virtualization. Um, they all have good documentation. You can find uh, on their websites. That's all good. Uh, so it's probably um, start with something. I, I mean, Lucas, when he wrote the jails book, he was using IOCage, but that's because uh, Bastille wasn't around that time. Um, maybe nowadays he would use Bastille, but again, these frameworks keep evolving and popping up and dying. Uh, so at one point you just pick one and then run with it. I, I love how unhelpful those answers are. We've tried all of them. They're all fine. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can run tools. Yeah. It's, it's, sure it's a Turing complete system. It's a computer. You can do it. Oh, <laughs> I maybe yeah. come back to Bastille and, and found the problem that I had with the VNet. And then so far I had a good uh, impression of it. So that's not a showstopper. Yeah, it's cool. Uh, play with things and, and come back to us. Tell us what you picked. It'd be great to know. Yeah. Yeah, good idea. Okay, uh, then I think that's the show for today. Uh, we thank you for listening as always. Keep coming back next week because there will be another one with Tom and myself. And uh, keep sending us questions because otherwise this last part of the show will be very empty. And then we have to do story time again. Maybe you like this, maybe you don't, but let's not risk anything. 